The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, we come into your presence again. We live in your presence, but we come uniquely to you now and and ask you for grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. We thank you that you call us to yourself. And that you are good and gracious and full of love for us. You call us to come into your presence and talk to you. So we do that now, thankful for the cross that makes life with you real and possible. We've sang of many precious things in the songs already this morning. By your love, you call us in, as we just said. Call us into your presence, Lord, and and sit us down and remind us of our responsibility. And remind us of the great reward that awaits, the discharge of that responsibility. So I pray this morning that as you, Spirit of God, move among your people here to align them with the Father, that you would align us not by guilt, that you would align us primarily, though, though Lord, bring guilt if it, is, if it is necessary. But move us beyond guilt and align us with the Father's heart primarily by call and enticement and offer of reward. There's a responsibility and there is a prize to be had. Cause us to long for it. And to see the goodness of the one who has made it all possible, who has led the way and makes it possible for us to walk this path and find this prize. Lord, cause our hearts to beat with Him, to beat for Him, and to long for Him to be known and honored everywhere, in our houses and on our blocks and in the nations. Give us a passion like Paul had for that. Use your word this morning. Teach and guide and correct and encourage and entice and draw your people after you for your glory and for their great good. That this morning I ask you in Jesus' name for his honor here among the nations. Amen. Can you get the sound tweaked a little bit? When I was in high school, I ran on the cross-country team for three years until my senior year when I wised up and joined some of my friends for a free daily round of golf on the golf team. I figured that out too late. But for three seasons, I was a runner. And in our state, the length of races for cross-country team was three miles, give or take a little bit, so 15, 18 minutes, depending how good you were. 
running down trails, through trees, through parks, sometimes across golf courses, over hill and dell, everywhere. And as I recall, the only actual coaching done during a race consisted of our coach finding a couple of strategic spots on the course and hanging out, and as we came by, yelling at us two, three, four times, you're falling asleep, you're asleep, wake up, race. So I did. That always proved helpful, though. Because invariably, and if you're a distance runner, you know this, invariably as you run over distance, something happens. You settle into a pace. You find a rhythm. Your body moving and your, your breathing finds a rhythm. And you stop racing. You're moving along. And I don't know if I ever actually slowed down, but when the coach yelled, you're sleeping, I'd wake up and realize I've been following that orange pair of shoes for five minutes. I'm just putting one foot in front of the other, matching. I'm not racing. And so his call brings me back and realizes what I'm doing. Now, of course, sometimes it would cause the other guy to wake up too, and then we'd both run faster. But, but the point is that up till that moment when he, when he yells and awakens us in, in his coaching moment, neither one of us are running to win. We're not chasing a prize anymore. We're just running to be finished. One foot in front of the other until it's over. We do that in our Christian lives, you know. Just moving through it. One foot in front of the other, knowing that one day it will be over, but no longer striving after a prize. And sometimes we need a faithful coach to come alongside at strategic points in the course and and yell at us to wake us up. Yell, not because he hates us, okay? But because over a little bit of distance and with all the other stuff going on, sometimes he needs to raise his voice so that we hear it. He's coaching. He wants our good. Paul this morning is your coach. Maybe he'll yell at you a little bit. I don't know. But he will, he will seek to kind of grab out and, and maybe awaken you and say, race, run. Run after something, not just to be done, not just to be finished, but seek after a prize. Go get it. It's to be had, but it will not come if you just continue at this pace. He'll model something for us and exhort us through direct statement even, urging us to go after something that will require discipline but is worth it. It's worth it. The fruit of the gospel enjoyed forever. So we're going to look at this morning as we continue on through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Begin in verse 19, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, 
that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the Gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings, or more accurately as the NAS has it, share of it. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 19 obviously comes right out of verse 18 where Paul is concluding his explanation about why he didn't take any financial compensation from the church in Corinth. He says, verse 1 of the chapter, I'm free and I have some some right, some entitlement to this, he argues throughout, but he doesn't do it because he wants to to not utilize all those rights for the sake of advancing the gospel. He doesn't want to put any obstacle Verse 12, any obstacle in front of the gospel. But he brings up the idea of free again. He wants to poke on that a little bit more here in the last half of the chapter. So verse 19, really in the original, free is the first word. It's kind of front-loaded for some emphasis. Free, I am. Really, I'm free. little twist here. Free from any obligation to anybody else. I am free from all. Perhaps this is part of the strategy. If they don't pay him, he doesn't owe them. I'm free from all. I'm not obligated to anybody in any way. I can live in any way that I desire. However, there's something more important than my personal autonomous living. More important than my personal liberty and rights. Still in verse 1. Free, yet I've made myself a servant. Literally, I have enslaved myself. To everybody. I'm free from everybody, but I voluntarily enslave myself to everybody. For a purpose, that I might win more of them. Paul does this to win people. To win them to faith in Christ. Which, pause for a moment, isn't in in any way whatsoever diminishing God's role in the salvation process. If you were to ask Paul, do you mean that salvation's up to you? No, 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 no. By no means. God actually saves people. He's really clear on that. But that's not what he's talking about in this section. In this section, he's working on my own personal rights and my desires and abilities about how I use them, particularly in the process of evangelism. And so what he's focusing on is what I do. And it's possible for me to live in a way that inhibits or creates an obstacle for the gospel. I don't want any of that. I don't want any of that. Because I'm really concerned that everything I do enhance, aid, and lead to the salvation of people. I want to save. I want to win people. Key phrase that repeats a total of six times in one way or another. He's highly concerned about this. He's thinking through and making determined choices about what would enhance witness so that people can be saved. 
all to increase his effectiveness. Verse 20, to the Jews I became a Jew, and to those under the law as, as under the law. Now it's possible that's two ways of talking about the same group. Probably though he means Jews and Gentiles who had adopted some form of Judaism, not quite converted all the way, but they still were highly concerned about living under the law of Moses and all of its, particularly its dietary restrictions, its behaviors and practices. And Paul says, I'm not under the law of Moses. I'm free from that. I'm a Christian and I know that, as chapter 8 said, whatever I eat in no way whatsoever commends me to God. I'm commended to God because of Christ only. I'm free from all that. However, if, if it's going to create an obstacle so that this particular group of people won't hear me and won't hear the message, fine then, let's, let's not eat pork. I'm fine with that. Though I like pork and can eat it. I won't. And for those who are outside the law, I can go the other way. And he qualifies that too because the word used outside the law could be understood as a lawless one. He wants to be really clear. No, I'm, I'm not outside of the moral law of God. There are boundaries here. I'm still required. I'm under the, God's obligation for holiness. There are boundaries. But within those boundaries, I will veer any way that I can if it will remove an obstacle so that you can hear the gospel. Same for the weak. Probably not meaning weak Christians, as he talked about earlier in chapter 8, but since this is evangelism, weak non-Christians, social lower-class people, outsiders, disenfranchised people, the poor. I will not be, I, I will not let myself be put into a box where I am a, a spokesperson for a religion of the rich and powerful. I will come to the weak also and say, this is for you, I am for you, I am of you, that I might win the weak. In fact, you could keep expanding the categories, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. He's got a passion here. Verse 23, he does this for the sake of the gospel. And literally, when I read it, I pointed out something. This, this is a great example of why it's helpful to study the Bible with two English translations. You'll see things, particularly if you know what your translations are like. The NAS, a little more literal, gives you something helpful here. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share or be a co-sharer of it. That is, of the gospel. Paul's emphasis here is, is not on blessings and not on other people. I do it for the sake of the gospel. He's got the gospel in mind. He wants to somehow enhance the gospel by becoming a co-partaker with Christ of what the gospel is. I want to enhance the gospel. Why? Because he wants to see people saved and they can only be saved through the gospel. So he wants to enhance the message about Jesus by embodying it and becoming a servant who sets aside his rights, dying to self that some might be saved. What does that sound like? It's the gospel message embodied. That I might win more of them, which, which is very hard, which is why he takes us to the last paragraph about the importance of self-discipline uses a couple of, of illustrations from, from athletic scenarios that would have been familiar in that day, running and boxing. We could pick any other one because all athletes who are serious about their sport work like this. 
got a goal and a way you get there. And you discipline yourself in momentary, daily, weekly, monthly choices so as to reach the goal. And they're doing it for a wreath that perishes. He's referring to you know, ancient Greek, the wreath. We could say trophy. A trophy that perishes. But we have a better one than that, so run after it. Do you see the enticement in that? Do you get the motivational mechanism here? People discipline themselves to chase after something that perishes, but we have a far better one that run after it. I, I of all people, I, I know that I, I could come to the end of the line and I could stand there and the judge could look at me and say, let's look at the edifice that you have built. Oh, it is made out of wood, hay, and stubble, it all perishes. Referring to chapter 3. I don't want that at all. I want to be sure that I chase after and, and grab hold of a prize where the, the judge can say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. What you have built lasts. Run after that. I, I can't see how we could miss the lure in that. It is not share your faith because you have to. It's not that. You sometimes feel like that though. He's got this evangelism context. Every possible thing I can do that some might be saved, run after the prize. That's an enticement. A lure. A promise. Which in my mind is the thing that we have to see. There, there are, I'm going to make a couple of observations here. One, one that's going to kind of unpack some of our responsibility and, and how some of the first paragraph works. And then the second paragraph is going to come to some discipline. But over the whole thing, in case I don't sufficiently emphasize this, let me say it again at, at the start. He is offering you a reward. Last week we saw there is reward even in the momentary preaching of the Gospel. And here he is talking about a future reward. An imperishable wreath that lasts forever. Run so as to get it. So please, over all of this, would you please come to think of your role in your life testifying to Jesus as opportunity and not burden. Over everything I say, maybe that can drape over it. I got a few other things I have to say too. So here's my first observation, from primarily from the first paragraph. The gospel grows when Christians live as sacrificing servants. The gospel grows when Christians live as sacrificing servants. And by grows, I mean that it spreads effectively. The Bible will talk about the gospel as if it's a living organism, as if it grows. I use that word, but it grows, it spreads effectively when Christians live as sacrificing servants. Paul obviously is speaking about himself here, but it's meant to serve as instruction. We know that because he comes around to give us an instruction. He's, he's modeling something that he expects us to adopt. 
So verse 19, I'm free from obligation to all others, yet I make myself a servant to them to live to help someone else. No one owns him. No one deserves anything from him. No one has a right to obligate him to anything, not to do things or avoid certain things. And he will voluntarily submit himself to them to be a help. And then he illustrates it in 20 and 21 and 22 and then expands it. I could go on in any conceivable way you can think of. All things to all people that by all means. I lay aside my rights and my privileges and my freedoms and instead give my attention to what? Six times that I might save some that I might save some, that I might save some, that I might win, that I might save, that I might win. I think he uses win more often. He's got that on the brain, does he not? His passion to see people one to Christ. And because no one is ever just hugged or loved or served or connected to enough that they just become a Christian... We are all saved by a means, the means of a message heard and believed. Because that's true, he moves on beyond just all this removal of barriers that would create a connection to the gospel in verse 23. It makes clear, I do it for the sake of the gospel. With the gospel in mind, I want to be a living illustration of it, be a partaker with Christ of it with all others who are like this. If we live like that, if we live as servants to others, setting aside our rights, walls come down. It's several different ways this, this benefit comes about. Several different ways. It, walls come down that we are no longer an offense to people. Walls come down that we're no longer talking about peripheral issues, but we're on task on the gospel. Walls come down that people see that we love them and mean for their good. And effectiveness increases because God the Spirit will own witness like that. He opposes the proud people who cling to their rights, but He gives grace to the humble, those who set them aside and are about His agenda. And then we speak of the message of the cross, it rings true. It's, it's illustrated in my life. There's something coming out of my mouth that I display has changed me. I am no longer fixed on me, but I'm about Him and you. There's, there's a consistency there. That's why the Gospel grows and we live like that. And we boil it all down. What we get, a little summary here. Servant is not just generally helpful. Like, I'm a servant, I I shovel your snow. Or I'm a servant to you, I I help you carry the groceries in, I watch your dog when you're on vacation. Those things are all good and helpful, but particularly servant here is someone who helps this other by bringing the gospel near and clearing away all barriers so that the gospel can be seen and, and got. It's a person who is thinking, I'm entitled to live in this, that way, and the other, and and I like that, but if I did, so-and-so might not get it. 
And I desire so-and-so to get it because that's the only way so-and-so can be saved. So I'll set all of that aside, make a conscious choice to draw near. For Paul, that meant food. Some cultural issues. How he dealt with money. And it may be some of that for us. It may involve politics for you. A whole bunch of us have some, some strong commitment to certain political positions which may, you may be entitled to and may be completely right and are beside the point. It may be some peripheral theological issues that may be all correct and right and are beside the point because they are not, nobody comes to them until you become a Christian first. But what I want to lean on here, so it may be all those things and you may need to think that stuff through, but what's most important, I think, and what I want to lean on here is the heart attitude. We could parse out what all the barriers are and how you could remove them from the hundred people that you know. But you won't do it if the heart attitude isn't adjusted. There's a heart attitude here shared by Christ, by Paul, and we are far from it. Often. We must be honest about something and we must repent of it if it is true. How earnest are you to see other people one to Christ? How earnest? I'll ask it again as I did last week. Do you realize that every single person, on most days, every single person you bump into outside your house and some of the people you bump into inside your house perhaps, awoke that morning, will walk through the day and lie down at night under the wrath of God? Separated from Him. All of the happy, jovial, rich people that you meet and all of the broken, broke, dejected people that you meet. All the sick people and all the healthy people. Everybody. Now, there are some small percentage of other Christians in the valley, so you may bump into one somewhere or another, but living here especially... Almost everybody. Everybody you see at Target. Everybody in your class at school. Some people even here in this school. Everybody. Most of them have no idea about it. Maybe they sense some vague separation, some vague distancing from God, but they've washed that over with something else and have moved on past it. And so not out of, of, of a condemning, angry, but instead out of a compassionate, loving, serving heart, someone needs to say to everybody that you cross paths with, friend, friend, 
We are born and grow up separated from God because of our sin. The God who made us and has all rights over us, we're distanced from Him and apart from faith in God's one answer, God the Son come to earth, gone to the cross. Apart from that, there is no hope at all whatsoever, not in any other religion on earth. In love and in service, someone has to say that to him. Maybe you cross their paths because that someone's supposed to be you. Everybody you bump into is in need of a great servant. The suffering servant. Do you see his heart? Do you understand his heart? And, and I'm not talking... I know that I'm talking to most people here who, who, who know this, but the great tragedy is that very frequently we move on past it and it becomes not much more than an assumption. A presumption, maybe. Yeah, I get his heart. No, think. Behold him who set the stars in place and who formed the earth from dust he made and filled the oceans with water from the cup of his hand. Who created matter by thought, knit you together in your mother's womb, has known and reigned over every single moment of your entire life. If ever there was one who was free and under no obligation to Anyone, anywhere, for anything, it's Him. He is the free one. And yet, amazingly, He did not regard the right to revel in that and to be worshipped for it as something to be held onto. Oh, how we do. Oh, how we do. No sooner do we find a right or a privilege, I'm alarmed by, I'll find... on the street and three seconds later it's mine I'm worried that the person who just dropped it's going to come back now I I don't say that out loud I want to give it back to them out loud but in my heart I found $10 mine oh how we cling to the rights and privileges that we find as we stumble through life none of them are ours He, the one who has all rights and privileges, did not count them as something to be held on to, but he laid them all aside and humbled himself and took the form of a servant, embraced a daily death and a cruel cross that he might save some. Right? Oh, he did not wait and he did not demand that we change first. And come to Him, but He came near to us and crossed over all of the barriers. While we were yet sinners and enemies and offensive to Him, He came near and He lived among us. He healed our infirmities and bound up our wounds to show us, to embody, to become a living illustration of a God who gives And then finally, at the end, He gave His very life for harassed 
and helpless and foolish and rebellious and evil and ugly and confused and proud and sad and empty people just like us. All over the map, are we not? How good He is. I think I would have stood over here and said, fix that to some degree, for goodness sake. And then we'll talk. How good He is and how great a thing is the Gospel of Jesus. That He would draw near. That He would give that He might save people like you. People like me. How good the life that He saves you to by His cross. How good the work He aims to complete in you. How faithful His promises to be all that you need. How right... Think about this. How trustworthy His offer to you, His invitation to you to come and find your life by losing it in His service for His purposes in the lives of all the people you run into at Target and in your neighborhood. And how amazing His forgiving grace poured out on us even at this moment because we do not live this. We sit here. Now, I need to be very careful because all of us are on slightly different pages to different degrees. Some of us live this. Some of us live it a little bit more. Bless you if you do. But I think the standard of the text is the word all. Servant to all. He throws categories out to include all and polishes it off with by all things to all people that I, by all means, I might win some. I don't think any of us meet the standard of the text. Maybe you're further down the road than I am, but all of us have fallen short. And the amazing, forgiving grace of God rests on us even at this very moment, which is why by no means, I want to make clear the responsibility, but by no means should you feel condemnation in it. Because there is therefore now no condemnation if you are in Christ. Which should stun you. <laughs> Which should stun you. As soon as you see the magnitude of what we're talking about here, and if you grasp some degree of frankly, are turning away from it and He doesn't smite us? No. That's amazing. That's amazing. That is amazing. That is amazing. We are far from the heart of Christ the servant and from the heart of Paul. But how we get there is by looking at this amazing grace, this amazing God. 
and realizing He is worthy of being known and worshipped everywhere in every aisle at Target, in every nation of the world. What moved Paul, what grabbed Paul was not ought. It was an alarming wonder. There is ought. There is ought. But there is more wonder. This God is amazing. He is amazing. And we always talk about that which amazes us. Drove by a sign on the way here this morning that said, Why do we tell stories? Question mark. And the first thing that came to my mind is to worship. And I thought, I maybe need to think a little more about that. I'm not sure it's true, true but I think it's true. I, I tell you stories to, in some way, to lift up something that I think is funny or interesting or, or creative or terrible, and I want to exalt the other. Maybe I want to exalt myself. In some way, I relate something to you because I find something remarkable there. Would you please, for your delight, gaze upon a God of amazing grace who did not stand off and grasp hold of His right, but drew near to deliver you. Will you gaze at Him and then gossip about Him everywhere? Paul knew Him and was amazed by Him and in comparison to Him considered everything else on this planet rubbish. He wanted to know Him more. And Jesus right, right now walks this road of suffering, this Calvary road, as a servant. Chase Him there. You can't find Him anywhere else. He's walking the road, the Calvary road, of suffering servant that some might be saved. That's where He is. Go find Him there. This is the call of God, and it is hard. So, there's something else that he gives us to kind of help point us in the right direction. That's the second observation. It comes from the second paragraph, and it's going to guide us a little bit. Because once we, we kind of gaze at God and, and he captures us, we see the goodness of him in the gospel, and then, kind of in a little twist, the gospel applies to me as I'm still kind of holding him at, at distance, at arm's length. So I see that, and then what do I do with it in my daily, moment by moment? That's where Paul brings in the discipline of an athlete. Because, see how this analogy works? The athlete has a goal. And so our goal to worship this God and to make Him known, and now I want that goal. I'm moved by it. My heart attitude has changed and then the athlete says, which means at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning I do something. And at 7 a.m. I don't do something. And at 8 a.m. I do. That's, that's the purpose of the analogy. How do I get there? Nobody says, I want to become a marathoner. Pass me a third helping of potatoes. It's kind of productive. So the second observation is, a disciplined life 
is required to receive the prize that comes from servanthood. A disciplined life is required to receive the prize that comes from the servanthood that we're talking about. All he said in the first paragraph is, is his call. It's a difficult one. So in 24, he gets around to this illustration. Don't you know that everybody who runs in a race runs, but only one wins? What he's not doing there is pitting us against each other. Now, in a real race, that would be a depressing analogy too far. In a real race, of course, everybody is against each other. There's only one winner. But his point is that he's trying to introduce the difference between running and winning. And you can run to run, or you can run to win. Run so as to win the prize. His, his point, his emphatic point there at the end of the verse. Run that you may obtain it. So here he is, your coach, calling out to you, race, run. There is a prize. There is a great reward to be had in the coming great days. Greater than any reward. And there is reward even now. But greater than it. It's a reward that lasts forever and ever and ever. He calls us to that. A life of sacrifice so as to reach out and grab something that is of great long-term gain. Far more than any trophy here on this earth. It, we just had you know, the, the NHL finals and, and the NBA finals just concluded recent months, recent weeks. Sometimes you see the athlete grab the trophy and sit down and weep with it for joy and release. Oh, I have a picture in my mind of Kobe Bryant bawling like a baby with the trophy a few years back. But it's over as soon as it starts, the celebration. It's over before it starts. Did, did, you, did you see the NBA Finals this year with the commercial they were running under the tagline? Not everybody's focused on this year's finals. And they have numerous NBA players depicting them working out for next year's season. Lifting weights, shooting, running. And this, this guy thinks he's winning a prize at last, and they already say, that's over. I'm moving on to next year already. There is a crown. There is a party, a celebration, a joyful, victorious rest that endures with a great multitude at worship in a new garden, in a better city with foundations. And at the center of it is a high king who is beautiful. The one for whom your heart was made. And you will stand and have audience with that king himself. You personally. And figuratively speaking, he will pull out a match and strike it. Wood, hay, and stubble? For gold and precious stones. Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want that? 
Now, the one who enters in as through fire. I'm referring to chapter 3 of this book, talking about ministers, which applies to other people by extension. Even that one who enters in by fire will still be a part of that celebration. But the point is to tell us that there is something greater. Specified? No. But something greater. And sometimes I think, if there's someone you respect and someone you love and adore, sometimes just their smile is the something greater. I don't know what exactly it is. But there's something. There's some reward. There's some prize that does not diminish the glory of Christ. I think it probably is something that helps us to enjoy it more. But I speculate. There is something. It will last forever. Run to win it. And that involves disciplined choice in the moments of your day. For Paul, obviously in this context, it involves some disciplined choice about the foods that he ate. Probably particular buildings that he went to. Who he ate with and around. How he spoke and and what he did with his hands and what kind of clothing it wore. Some of those things may apply to us. Mentioned some of the earlier things, perhaps politics, perhaps peripheral religious issues. But I think, and you think, think through those things if you want, but I think that this hits closest to home for us today in our calendars. Even more than in our checkbooks. I, I think a lot of us would rather write a check and be done with it than to actually spend time on something. I'm not just talking about something related to the church or or Christ. Just anything. I think a lot of us would rather write a check and be done with the home renovation or be done with the car repair than actually do it ourselves because we value our time more than our money, assuming we have the money. I think this hits closest to home in our calendars. You are Lord over your calendar. You pull it out every day and either punch buttons or click down the pencil. On the side of your fridge, you decide what you write in it. You're free. Now, obviously, you're under the law of God. You you can't write in, go do this out of the other. That would be sinful. But but under those parameters, you can write in whatever you want. You're free. But might you be a servant to others? Might you stop and think through, if I live and if I walk in this particular path, so-and-so is not likely to hear the Gospel. Not likely to hear the Gospel clearly in a compelling way. I think it hits in our calendars. Do I write in? Do I plan Not if it happens. Athletes don't work like that. Athletes don't improve their shooting if they happen to find themselves on a basketball court with a basketball with time on their hands. They grab a ball and go to the court on purpose. So with pencil in hand, do you on your calendar schedule in time 
to be with non-Christian family so-and-so, non-Christian co-worker so-and-so? Do you in your morning time schedule time to pray for non-Christian neighbor, non-Christian spouse, non-Christian child? It might mean, and here I'm going to push kind of in two different ways because it could be different for every single one of us, but it might mean that you cut things out of your calendar to make room or it might mean that you bring people into the things you're already doing. An example. If, if, I'm, if I'm asking you to do something like write on your calendar, you might be thinking, I have one hour this week. How are you inviting me to write in so-and-so into that one hour. Well, what I'm inviting you to do is either clear out a bunch of stuff so that you have more than one hour, or invite them into something else that's already on your calendar. I don't know which it is for you, but my point is that it has to be one or the other. Has to be. Or you will not win the prize. I don't see any way around the logic. There, there is a prize to be had. Run so as to win it. Make choices throughout day. And, and if the calendar is a problem, as I think it is, I don't know how you do anything but change the calendar. Make decisions about your time rather than let it manage you. We do this with our work. Few of us Take work as it comes to us. If I manage to get up in the morning, if I manage to get to the office, if somebody calls me with an account, we know this with things that matter to us. Does this matter? It should, not out of guilt, but out of offer, out of lure. There's a prize. awesome and glorious and gracious God will speak to you commendation. Not condemnation. Commendation. If you've got some idea of who He is, that should entice you. A number of us here are... I want to say one word here as I'm closing... A number of us here have young kids, and it's easy to say, you know, when the kids move on, then I'll, then I'll turn to this. I, I don't think you will. I think you're setting patterns, and once they're 18 years entrenched, or more, if you have multiple kids, they're hard to undo. Well, my kids are involved in, man, you know, once we've got all the homework done and all the, the, the basketball stuff done and then the, the field trip for this and the, where do we do this? It's, it's possible, and I, I just want to put this out there. I don't know what your situation is specifically, but just think about this. It is possible that it would be more developmental, more educational, and more spiritually fulfilling for some of us to cut out extracurricular activities, or some of them, and spend time with a non-Christian family at our dinner table with Junior sitting right there watching the whole thing. 
Well, that means he never learns to play piano. Yeah, so what? He might learn to chase the prize. That might bless him for eternity. I don't know. Obviously, every one of our families is in a different situation. (laughs) I'm trying to figure this out for my own family. But give some thought to that, parents. There's reward on the table for us with young kids, too. And if you decide to start training for it when you get older, you might miss opportunity to train them and you might never actually get around to it. So I'm not talking about others. I'm talking about us. And I'm in that boat with you. Called you this morning. Are you asleep? Wake up. Race. Chase the prize. It is worth it. Let me pray. Father, would you work in us to give us grace to say no to the baubles and trinkets of the world in which we think we find life. Some of them look great. Many of them in right context are gifts from you to be enjoyed. But give us grace to shape our priorities to live with your heart captured by you about your agenda with your values. To help us, Father, Son, Spirit, convict and encourage, entice and lure, motivate. Make us a people pleasing to you. It will mean something different for all of us with all different situations in life, all different gifts. Gifts of singleness and gifts of marriage, spiritual gifts, natural talents. It will mean different things for all of us. So speak to each one of my brothers and sisters here. Speak to them now in coming days as they talk it over with friends, people that they're in Bible studies with and in small groups with and gospel communities with. Speak in those various settings to show us what we must do. And cause us to want to. Make us a people pleasing to you, Lord, I pray. Call us by your love. Thank you. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.